This is your coffee break. Hi friends, I am back again this week with a wonderful guest that I'm so excited to have on the show. Karan Bajaj is a number one best-selling Indian novelist with more than 200,000 copies of his novel in print. Both have been optioned into major films, which is really exciting. Karan's first worldwide novel, The Yoga of Max's Discontent, will be published by Random House on May 3rd, so that's just coming up really soon here. Uh, the book has been called The Greatest Adventure of Our Generation by the Daily Telegraph, and it was actually inspired by Karan's one-year sabbatical traveling from Europe to India by road and learning yoga and meditation in the Himalayas. Karan has worked in senior executive roles at companies like Procter & Gamble and the Boston Consulting Group and was named among Ad Age's top 40 under 40 executives in the U.S. Whew. Just a few more things here. You can get his free meditation video course on his website, which is karanbajaj.com slash about. That's K-A-R-A-N-B-A-J-A-J.com. And you can read more about his upcoming book, The Yoga of Max's Discontent, on his website as well. With all of that bountiful introduction, welcome, Karan. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Sara, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> What an introduction. I feel like you have just led such a rich and interesting life, and I want to hear all about it. Um, first, do you want to say a few things about yourself in your own words? Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I guess the best way to start is that I kind of follow a little bit of a, what I'm calling a 414 principle, which is like I work very, very hard and in a particular way for four years, and then I take a year off. Mm. And then I do another four years of very kind of goal-driven work and then take another year off. So I've been kind of in that cycle for the last decade or so. I've done it about three times. And I guess that's like the reason I kind of said that as an introduction, because that's been kind of the fountainhead for a lot of different things. You know, it's allowed me to have a solid corporate career, yet have my writing and yet be able to develop new interests, you know. So, yeah. so I think that's uh, so I think that's kind of the like the genesis of a lot of thoughts. And then there's some like principles I follow within this year and stuff that could be interesting to your listeners. So yeah, but that's a good introduction. Oh my gosh. It sounds like maybe with the year off and you've done that three times, have you, was this your third sabbatical then? This was my third sabbatical. Exactly. Oh, so the other two, um, were those also sort of creative writing centric? So the funny thing is, see, I grew up as an engineer and went to business school and like uh, have had a corporate career. So I actually didn't even know that I had a talent or a tendency to write creatively at all. Oh so gosh. part of what happened in the first sabbatical was that after four or five years of working with Procter & Gamble, I took a year off to travel essentially. And during the act of traveling, I just had this kind of like, I just had this feeling that I was living a... A relatively untraditional life for Indians because mm. I grew up in India, which is a very tight-knit community and a very like, uh, like you know, like a very risk-averse tight-knit community because of more, more more than anything because of economic reasons. And and I thought like I was kind of like pushing the boundaries of that experience, which comparatively, if you think of the US, that's nothing. You know, so many people take a year off to travel. That's no big deal. But in India, people of a certain, I guess, middle class or whatever never do that. Mm -hmm. So I had this urge to like, you know, to kind of write that in a story form. So that's how I, I wrote my first novel, which which ended up doing very well uh, in India. So so I guess the part of the reason why this sabbatical thing is working very well for me is that I'm very goalless in the sabbatical. Like that's almost very conscious that the mm -hmm. four years I'm working, I'm very left-brained, analytical, goal-driven, 
and in the one year i'm kind of consciously goalless i just <laughs> let go of all goals uh, physically and emotionally so like physically that means that for instance in this last sabbatical uh we just like landed in europe by the cheapest flight from the us uh, so we chose the flight on the last day it was scotland was like roll of the dice was 100 dollars <laughs> uh, so we chose this flight to scotland and from scotland we had no plan at all we just knew that we wanted to get to india in 3 4 months wow. and we kind of just let every day be its own decision depending on if we met someone who told us that bulgaria is great and they were going there so we went with them for two weeks <laughs> to bulgaria like so we just kind of like i kind of consciously want to become spontaneous in this year and not be my usual like analytical goal driven self and i think that kind of opens venues to new things in life you know like so i like as i said the first time i started writing the next time i kind of got interested in meditation the third time i'm like you know like every time there is a new dimension that emerges and part of the dimension emerging is to be go less and silent for the year you know to not have too much also what i call emotional materialism like people like mm. us are i have figured out that physical materialism like houses and cars and stuff don't mean anything but like this whole we've replaced that with a what i think of somewhat of a emotional materialism in which you're very mm. hungry to grow to experience to read a lot more books to meet the right people to have the five people that's going to change our lives but I also shed all of that baggage in this year. I just probably read one or two books again and again. And and I think that's been very helpful because that shuts the noise and helps me create from within myself without relying on any I guess external noise to help me. So I think that helps me a lot. So I think that's been a a consistent theme overall is to be goalless, to be silent and then also to strip my life of comfort. That again is very helpful because what happens in these four years that I'm working is that if you you know I work in New York now uh even if you don't want to you get uh, sucked into comfort like you know whole mm-hmm. foods and organic food and green juices and you know you just get sucked into the whole comfort game mm-hmm. and i think for the year that we are off like my wife and i uh, we are very austere like you know this time we spent four months in an ashram in the himalayas like we were sleeping on floors in the ashram for like four months in a row in dorm rooms with 60 70 people we had cold showers in the mountains high high up in the mountains so it what happens with that is that there's a lot of reductionism that happens physically as well mm. so once you come back you're not very you're very honest in your work because you know that all you need to get by in life is really a floor in an ashram you know that's okay and and i'm sure i can like figure that out and uh, and if that's all i need then why should i put any other criteria on my work except for doing it well and that's good i think this all this kind of stuff reduct- reductifies simplifies allows me to make honest intuitive choices uh, and and it's kind of like helps me do well in my job as well as my writing you know yeah i love that what how beautifully said too i absolutely love that i love the idea i mean you just said so many great things there i love the point about intentional spontaneity there's just such a delicious tension there i i absolutely love that you do that was it difficult sort of making the decision to write creatively for the first time when you were on that first sabbatical knowing that you do have that engineering background what what made you decide to explore creative writing See that's the funny part sara like when you get very silent for a period of time and and with silence that could mean stripping your life of experiences and reading and like everything else basically mm-hmm. uh you start to realize things about yourself that you that your tendencies that you have so for instance i just didn't know that i would write and i just felt the need to write and i just kind of honored that and did the uh, like started writing so i didn't have those barriers because I wasn't trying to get anywhere with it like mm-hmm. I was just um 
like I was just honoring an urge. So right now, once again, I'm not trying to get any. Like right now, people in my like when I give media interviews and stuff for the novel which is coming up, people are asking me like, ah, uh, you know, do you want to become a meditation teacher or a like or, or like a writing kind of like a full time writer? And I'm like, no, I just want to be like you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm happy like this. I'm like I'm not trying to get anywhere. Like so, right now, whatever urge I have, I just follow that. You know, and that's good. That is amazing. Is it is it hard? So so you do that during your one year sabbatical. What kind of change does it take then to to go back to four years of work? The tank is full when you come back, and then it starts to deplete. Mm-hmm. You know that's the nature of this world. <laughs> like the world uh, kind of depletes your supply of, I guess, purity. If you yeah. will, because, <laughs> like you work in a job, and there is the same old like you know politics and this, and people pulling you down, and you you're like zen for not zen is the right word, but you are like mature for a while, but then you get sucked in, <laughs> and then you kind of start to deplete a little bit. Same with like you know you're very pure in your writing, then you get rejected by literary agents then you get a publishing deal like at, the, at a publishing house the marketing to, uh, like uh, function won't do it you know the usual pettiness of life starts mm-hmm. to erode your like you know existence mm-hmm. and then so you you need to kind of like refuel again <laughs> so i think unfortunately until i i guess reach the point where i like i feel just that's enough like those one year becomes 20 years and i just want to be off the grid but i don't feel like i right now i'm just honoring the idea that i want to come back after that year and be in the world and accomplish things in the world so that's what i'm feeling right now i'm not yet at the stage of becoming a hermit <laughs> could happen could happen and i'm open to that possibility but it's not there yet yeah. I, I definitely appreciate that sentiment i i take a hermitage once a year just not anywhere fancy or anything that just to um just a little bit north of here but it's there's something so beautiful in in getting away and being alone and just really finding yourself and then coming back it's it's just it, it gets a little depressing to know that the world will begin to weigh on you again you <laughs> right, know right yeah what and what keeps the hope alive is that, that you can sense i can sense the tank like you know fuel, the fuel tank like depleting so i can just sense it and know that at least there's a period at the end of this that I'll like you know replenish it again so I'm kind of more forget I guess more forgiving of myself for being petty <laughs> right yeah there's just something so lovely and balanced in that about about accepting that you could be petty for a while because you know that you have this beautiful thing <laughs> right. to look forward to yeah oh man I want to ask so this latest sabbatical was yoga focused. And I'm wondering what what kind of ties you saw between taking a sabbatical, doing yoga, and then how that impacted your creativity. Oh, uh, yeah, excellent question. I think yoga, meditation. Uh, so, so I like this definition of yoga uh, in the sutras, which nobody really mentions. But the Sanskrit word is uh, the definition of yoga is chitta vritti nirodha, which means stopping the fluctuations of the thought waves of the mind. Right. Oh. So that's kind of the single one-line definition of yoga. The whole science of yoga, the physical, the meditation, the emotional, every the whole science of yoga is on. Chitta Vritti Niroda, which is it stops the fluctuations of the thought waves of the mind. With the with the kind of the Eastern mystical belief being that once you stop the fluctuations of the thought waves of the individual, then you kind of become the universal or whatever. Like, you know, you become one with the soul. Or But even if you don't believe that, the idea is that you uh, stop your mind from vacillating. Mm-hmm. So, so that's exactly what happens. Like as I, in the year off, as I deepened my practice, I became like extremely razor sharp conscious of uh, what what was happening was that the action reaction cycle was breaking so i think what happens typically is that we have a stimulant like like somebody's irritating us we mm-hmm. get irritated like the action is that somebody's being negative and then our reaction is to be negative in turn 
or angry or like so there's always an immediate spontaneous action reaction i think what happens with yoga and meditation is that that action reaction there is a lag in between mm. so there is an action somebody makes you angry the reaction for you is that you note you just have a like a visceral feeling within that i'm getting angry and in this act of noting that i'm getting angry you no longer get angry so i think what happens as a result is that if you have this whole feeling for a period of time right your thoughts are much more silent because you're not constantly playing you know he said that she said that he that you you're almost kind of like observing yourself and being like oh i'm thinking he's like i'm thinking that i'm irritated rather than i'm irritated and i think that space allows you to be uh, much more silent and much more creative mm. you know so i think that's the chitta vritti you know the silencing of the thought waves of the mind or the stilling of the thought waves of the mind that's what i've learned uh, i learned in the sabbatical and has helped me you know That sounds amazingly peaceful. Do you find yourself using those practices now that you're kind of back in the work world? Uh yes, I like yeah, right now like for instance I have a job and then I have like a novel coming out. So I think obviously and then I have two babies, you know, like Oh, congrats. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so to add to the mix, I have a lot of things uh which are like, you know, which which so I think I'm now into stolen moments, which is like mm. if I could get a like I just and I'm kind of consciously aware that I'm stealing moments. So for instance, if like there is a rare time that i get up at 7:30 and i know that my 18 month old will get up at 8 and my 1 month old is sleeping then i'll just meditate quickly for half an hour and then on but on other days i let myself be because i know that won't happen because maybe mm-hmm. the either the infant or the toddler will wake up before me and then so i'm i'm i try to like steal moments and not place the burden of a practice mm-hmm. and then try to kind of have this idea of noting going on throughout the day that i note my reaction versus react and i think that's helpful uh, like that i just i'm trying to build it in almost intellectually in my head that i'm noting like uh, mm. that i note every time emotionally but physically also i note every time i try i start to walk very fast mm. so i note that because i know that that means i'm not present i'm trying to rush towards something or if i find myself physically leaning forward then i know that i'm leaning towards something and not being in the moment so i try to note more and that's kind of my i guess practice if you will in the midst of the world You know, you talked about when you're on your sabbatical, you just let everything go from the work world. When you're back in the work world, do you let any of that creativity back in? Like you talked about noting the way that you're thinking and feeling. Do you do that through journaling at all or do you do any other creative stuff during those 4 years? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I don't journal or do like the three morning pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just I just make it a point to create every day. And and when you mean create every day, that doesn't mean writing a novel. it could be thinking about a concept writing a blog uh, shooting a youtube video on my own it's a very like peaceful act for me to think of a concept you know rather mm-hmm. than just uh, read or like not so i just try to i try to think of a concept and and like either i put it out there in the form of a blog or a youtube video or i sometimes don't and and i and i just kind of like i think that act of creation every day keeps me i guess pretty honest you know Oh, I, I know it's 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 getting in touch with that, you know, that really deep part of yourself. Yeah. I I want to go back to something that you said and you talked about it in when you were talking about yoga, you mentioned uh not having like the burden of a practice. And and I kind of want to ask there's sort of a, a a tension there, a dichotomy there, uh thinking about something that's very freeing and peaceful as being a burden. Can you talk to me a little bit more about sort of that balance? Yeah no it's a great point i think it's actually very good to have a disciplined practice like it is very very good like i i've seen the effect of committing to 30 minutes of meditation in the morning and 30 minutes in the night 
I've seen the practice like have a tremendous effect on my life. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be a little like forgiving of yourself when the environment changes very dramatically rather than feeling like guilty about it all the time, right? You know, so I think I try not to feel very burdened by any concept. So even this idea of like, I need to do this 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the night is a little bit of a concept that's enforced by you. Mm. And so anything that weighs you down as a concept should, I guess I, I just want to live my life a little baggage free. So as long as my heart viscerally is saying that this is a very useful practice and as a result my physical self is following that visceral instinct then it's good but if it's like my heart is saying that no I can't do it because you know I have a toddler who's wanting something right now and then I don't want my body to be resisting that like you know in the sense I just want to flow Mm, mm -hmm. yeah but but I uh, having said that I think in the beginning phases when it's hardest to build a routine it's very good to have discipline. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm also, I've also been meditating for about five years now. So I have a little bit, not to say that I'm any kind of an expert in any way. But after five years, some concepts have internalized very well, I think, which hadn't internalized in the first five days. So I think it's a little bit, uh, slightly easier now to go through ebbs and flows, you know. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to switch gears just a little bit and ask you about your book, which I'm really excited about. Do you mind if I, uh, well, I was going to say, do you mind if I read the blur? But would you rather just talk about it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the yoga of Max's discontent, it's being published by Random House. Within that, there's an imprint called Riverhead, which is a very small but wonderful imprint, which does only a few books a year. The premise of the book is that it's about an investment banker who becomes a yogi in the Himalayas. So a Wall Street investment banker who becomes a yogi in the Himalayas as he deals with, a, with his past of being in, uh, growing up in the Bronx in the housing projects and stuff. Like to for me the I guess the biggest challenge of this novel was that I wanted to be I wanted to combine entertainment and meaning right so mm. I wanted it to be about a deep personal journey of transformation that the readers embark on and yet it should be a completely page turning adventure because I don't want this to become a a PhD thesis or a fable mm-hmm. or a, like I want it to be a story first and foremost it's fiction it's a story. And any learning that the reader gets is because the character has experienced some truth and not because I as an author know a truth, you know, almost. Mm-hmm. So I think there are many points in, even in the book in which the character and I have bifurcated about our learnings. And that's because the character has followed a certain journey. And and I, so I think that was the challenge for me to let go of all authorship, let the character <laughs> run their story. And... And so in the end, I think if I were to like in, in, in its summary, the book is very, as the Telegraph said, it's the greatest adventure of a generation because it's really a page turning story from the Bronx to hidden night markets to surreal ashrams to remote caves in the Himalayas. So it's a very page turning like the like into the wild kind of a, like, a, you know, very fast moving uh, journey. And mm-hmm. then like, you know, as a, as a consequence of that physical adventure, there's an emotional transformation that happens. But that's not like a a pedantic, there's no pedantic uh, theology in this that I'm trying to communicate, you know. You know, that's the real, for me, that's the real beauty of fiction. It's it's when, yeah, this is why I love to read. And I have to tell you, I work a full-time job and have all of these other things. And I I just decided to, um, I got an advanced copy and I decided just to open it and just get a feel for your language and the flavor of things. And and it was a page turner. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Like there was never a good point where I'm like, okay, I can stop and be satisfied. And so I actually read way more than I intended to. And I think that's a testament to your Mm -hmm. storytelling abilities, but Thank oh you my for God. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it is really enjoyable. I can um I can attest to that. And I, I'm actually really looking forward to finishing it now. 
was it was it difficult not to get pedantic because this was based on what I the very limited knowledge I have of your experience it it, it seems a little bit autobiographical was there a weird place where it took a sharp turn away from your story and became Max's story yeah that's a great question because I think it did happen like that I I think the first couple of drafts were very pedantic mm. and I and I think after getting some distance from them I started to realize that they were very pedantic so I had to then consciously get honest again on what was the character experiencing and like and creating a true fictive dream mm-hmm. uh, so I had to kind of completely relinquish control as an author and yes it was like it's all it's it, it was a challenge but I think by the end it became very what I think what was the, the mind-opening part was truly understanding every day in my character's life. Mm-hmm. I think what was happening before was that I was kind of glazing over the first... Uh, so it's about a Greek, uh, like he's a Greek origin investment banker. So perhaps I didn't understand being Greek in the housing projects in the US very well, right? So as a result, I was like kind of... I didn't fully understand his background. And as a result, I think what was happening is that his choices were being were my choices, but mm-hmm. his background is not my background. So the moment I kind of immersed myself in his first 30 years which actually don't appear in the book at all almost or appear as like very you know in very small flashbacks that they don't appear that's not a major chunk of the novel it's probably 20 pages of a 350 page novel but that 20 pages or that background shaped the whole view of the story and I think in the beginning I didn't understand that background as well as I understood through the subsequent act of writing it. Interesting. Did you go through and write out those 30 years is that how you got that experience? Part was that and part was spending a lot of time in the Bronx and mm-hmm. reading a lot about the Bronx. So I think I must have read 50 books about... <sighs> so So I think if I were to like to put it in perspective, for the first 30 pages, I have read 50 books. And for the, la- for the next 320 pages in research, I've read five books. <laughs> because the next 320 pages were very familiar with me because of my life. And the first 30 pages were very unfamiliar with me. So I became very immersed in living that so I must have read like 50 to 70 books and like countless articles for just those 30 pages which kind of form the thrust of the novel you know mm-hmm. and even now if I look at the reviews the reviews are like very heartwarmingly incredible like you know if you look at Goodreads and stuff I I, I don't know like I'm up to 125 advanced reviews and they're still all almost five stars and it's very very touching but even then if you look at the reviews also they still point out that the novel truly kicks into gear when it gets into India after 30 pages um. so despite my I guess honesty it was still feeling I guess heavy for the reader or, or they were sensing that it wasn't that there was still a presence of an author the moment it gets to India they're all saying that they're completely lost in the experience you know yeah, oh my yeah. gosh, that's so interesting how those truths do come out. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, exactly. They do come out. And yeah, and I like, you know, I should be promoting my novel, but I'm being honest in saying that people <laughs> are like, you know, commenting on the first 30 pages. And like, but the reviews are uh, like on the whole overwhelmingly very, very positive, but like still flash of, uh, it's, my slips are uh, obvious to the reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the theme for today's episode is just honesty. You've talked about honesty several times, and I love that you're willing to be honest and authentic about the reviews. And I, I love that they're overwhelmingly positive as well, and I I think you're balancing that very well. well thank you. Yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite part about writing this novel? Favorite part about writing this novel? Uh, okay, so the favorite part is actually, without giving away too much, there are some small... I wouldn't say supernatural because that sounds very... Like, I would say there's some mystical experiences that happen in the novel, Mm. which are very interesting to me personally because I've read a lot of ancient yogic text. And in the ancient yogic text, which goes back to 10 centuries before Christ, 
you see a lot of examples of people who've developed extrasensory powers reading minds and walking on water and all that kind of stuff right levitating mm-hmm. and and your first reaction to all of that as a rational thinking person is that it's either mythology or whatever and it doesn't make any sense but as i was kind of like researching this novel and also experiencing parts of the novel a lot of these concepts became like so for instance let's take like break this down to like a concept about reading somebody's mind mm. on paper this would be like oh like that's a mystical thing but really if you look if you dissect that a little bit more scientifically words are just a grosser form of thought right so there is a feeling that emerges in the heart it becomes a thought in the mind and it becomes a word in the mouth right mm-hmm. so that's kind of the the process of what happens if you are in a place physically and emotionally that you are completely silent and completely attuned to nature and life why is it so hard a leap of faith to assume that you can read things at a more subtler level like right so instead of words which are a grosser form of feeling why can't somebody just read feelings so i think i don't know so as i look at concepts like these thing like what you would think of mystical unexplainable experiences the yogic text explains it in a very scientific rational kind of way and for me that like putting that in a story form and like a character de- developing some of these experiences and to present it very logically to the western mind was both very interesting and very fun Oh my gosh, I bet that sounds absolutely fascinating. <laughs> at at its heart, it's a very page-turning adventure through India, so if you are interested in new worlds, I think this will open your life to, uh, like open your mind to a little bit of a new world outside in a in a very page-turning way and then I hope that there is a message of transformation here, but nobody's hitting you in your head to take away any message. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. I appreciate that. And I'm even yes. more excited now like just to hear the enthusiasm and the love in your voice for this work. It's I'm just so excited to finish reading it now and to have that adventure. So Yeah, thank you. Gosh, thank you. Well, thank you. This is very exciting. There was a really wonderful article in the New York Times that was written that now that you wrote. Yes, on yes. Sunday. Yeah, just yes. a week ago. Yeah. Which is wonderful timing. And I've actually I read it through a couple times because I liked it so much. There's just some some very interesting things in here. One of the things that stood out most to me, you talk about going on your third sabbatical and learning yoga, you felt like a beginner again. Can you tell me a little bit more about that feeling? Yeah, and that's happened in almost every sabbatical where uh there's a lot of deconstruction of the concepts that happen because knowingly or unknowingly I guess we get very weighed down or attached by different identities I think like you know if you're successful in the corporate world you get like I guess uh, weighed down by that identity that you are like a brilliant marketer or whatever you are or this kind of a writer you know I'm more a non-fiction writer or I'm like this I guess I I like magic realism so you're just weighed down by a lot of concepts and i think the power of a journey like that is that there is a lot of dissolution of those concepts that happen for me like for instance when i i went and did yoga teacher training in a very rigorous ashram in the himalayas and i had actually barely done 10 days of yoga before that in my life and i oh went straight gosh. into doing a teacher's training you know in a place where everybody was an expert and was like practicing for 10 or 20 years before i guess doing it uh so i think yeah so the par was that like i was a very humble beginner who was falling being slapped around by every guru for just like having no control of my body and my mind 
and and i don't know i think those kind of things are very reductifying like they are humbling mm-hmm. and you know it's great for a year i'm a nobody like i'm no director in some consumer company or like some best selling author like i'm nobody i'm just a guy who sleeps on a floor in an ashram and <laughs> doesn't know any yoga and like everybody says is restless physically <laughs> mentally and and that's great i think i i like that complete dissolution because then you come back and you're very grounded you know you're not flying high and labeling yourself with a lot of uh, notions about yourself you have had a very successful career too. I mean, both in writing and in sort of marketing and advertising. And so just seeing that you're willing to sort of let those labels go is, is I think, a really powerful testament. Yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge. Yeah, but like, but it's good because every time now I know four years later or maybe now two years because I've been out, uh, we've been around from the sabbatical for two years. I won't go and learn to become a yoga teacher again. I'll probably learn something else, which will again put me in a very humbling beginner place. And I don't know what that is, nor do I want to know yet. Like it'll come by itself, that inclination. And I think that's good. It'll be again humbling again to be a beginner, you know, and I think that's always powerful. It comes back, uh, may you come back very humble from the whole experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For you, what is what is the value of that humility then? The value of that humility is just like this idea that you become a a vessel for your work. I mm. think in a way, like you, you're not trying to get anything from it or get anywhere. Like a tree just grows and bears fruit. It's not questioning whether it should wear a suit and go to office, right? Mm. That's the, it's the nature or the tendency of the tree is to just do that. So I think what happens to me is that once I come back, I'm like, Okay, I'm in this job and my ten, my I guess my nature here is to do my work and not to become the CEO or to become that or to become this. Like it, it's very reductifying in terms of, you know, to just become a vessel for whatever I'm meant to do. I feel like I can learn a lot from that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that, Sarah. Yeah. A lot of new writers, unpublished writers listen to this podcast. Do you have any advice for those writers? What would I say? Like, it's so contextual on your mm. particular situation. Have you been rejected a lot of times? Have you never been rejected? Have you, this is this your first novel? But I guess, I guess if I were to simplify it, I really like the parallel of a story and a life. In a good story, there is a character or a protagonist who's striving for a very lofty, unattainable goal and is facing conflict after conflict and stumbling often and picking themselves up again in this pursuit of a very lofty unattainable goal and in the end in the climax even if they win or they don't win doesn't matter right like you've enjoyed the story just because the character has given it its all towards this very lofty goal so i don't know so if you treat your life as a bit of a story and keep asking yourself if you are pursuing a lofty almost unattainable goal which is beyond your reach and are you stumbling enough to get that then i think that leads to very interesting stories so if you live an interesting life, that leads to an interesting story. And if you think of your life as a story, you lead an interesting life. So I think I've, I find like writing has been very helpful to my life that way. I kind of keep thinking, is this a story or is this like avoiding a story? You know, <laughs> I love that. You are the first person I've talked to who has said something like that. So I oh, really? okay. yes, no, this is good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that so like to, I guess, learn from your writing and be a, a story in your life. Then I think what will happen is that your writing will be very deep and profound as a result, because you'll probably kind of take inspiration from your life into the story. and It'll be very different. Versus like, you know, the usual serial killer story or like whatever the 18th story on the 180th story on the damaged detective, you know, like Mm -hmm. end up creating more original ideas because you're living your life like an idea. This is not one of the questions I had planned, but do you you read a lot of fiction? 
a very good question i do my tastes have changed a little but yes i do read a lot of i you know have read a lot of fiction somehow right now everything is feeling a little incomplete in fiction like i feel like it's not raising the right questions for me or giving me the right answers so i so right now i'm like a, a little bit off fiction i don't know the last book i read was the light between oceans which mm-hmm. i liked mm-hmm. uh, it's an old book i think uh, about like a, a lighthouse in australia not not the light all the light you cannot see but the light between oceans mm-hmm. which is uh, So that was the last fiction that I enjoyed but right now I'm a little bit on a non-fictionish diet you know I understand yeah, yeah. I get that way Sometimes too I read I, in phases Yeah yeah exactly but I yeah but I'm a voracious fiction reader you know yeah in general Yeah oh that's awesome Okay that was an unscheduled and unplanned question but <laughs> I'm glad that you answered it The very the very last question I want to ask you is during your sabbatical was there just one lesson that you learned or one piece of advice that you received that you would like to share Yeah okay so it's a again I I'm I think I'm taking your interview into a completely metaphysical like No this is awesome <laughs> soulful trajectories uh, okay so I there is this concept in the yoga sutras which is that like what is the meaning of life right the uh, age old question so yeah. it defines the meaning of life as a bit of a flight of an eagle right so the eagle first spreads its wings very high and then brings its wings down and that's what life is that you first have to stretch the boundaries of experience flap your wings high grow as much as you can and then kind of gently bring the wings down and that kind of completes the cycle of a life uh, so i guess my point on that is that there is a role for like i think you should just live each experience completely so when you're in that growth phase you know that you you know it intuitively that you're in a very growth phase because you're seeking experiences mm-hmm. you should just be very unrestricted in seeking experiences and richness in your life and pushing the boundaries of growth but then you do reach a point i think when the world and its experiences start to appear a little stale and repetitive Mm. and if you keep doing the same things again and again in that you're stuck in a rut of a kind so like for instance you might you have gone to europe 10 times or whatever and if you go to the 12th trip to paris to see a castle and have like you know a glass of wine that maybe you've reached a point where that is not what maybe you are craving a deeper sense of silence within and maybe your vacation or your experiences should then change dramatically to accommodate that so i don't know it's a long answer to the point being that that's the kind of the flight of life is to experience and again evolution and evolution experience a lot and then go within and to live each phase with a lot of like depth and recognize it when it's happening That is a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for that. Once again, this is Karan Bajaj. He is with us today speaking about his new book, The Yoga of Max's Discontent. It is available for pre-order currently on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, IndieBound, and probably some other places as well. Um, I will make sure to link to those uh, for you today in today's show notes. Um, I will also be linking to Karan's book on Goodreads, his Twitter account, his Instagram, Facebook, and of course his website, karanbajaj.com, which I encourage you to visit. He has some really cool stuff out there. I was actually, I was actually watching your meditation video earlier this morning, and it was was just really engrossing and really wonderful. And I love that you're just willing to share that knowledge with us. So thank you. Well, yeah, once again, thank you so much for, um, for being on the show and just all the best to you. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. 